Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. This week, President Trump fired Christopher Krebs, director of the Federal Election Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security. He's bringing Republican state lawmakers from Michigan to the White House after the Trump campaign's legal challenges in Michigan failed. And the Trump administration continues to stymie an orderly presidential transition, all of which drew this from President-elect Joe Biden, who said the American people are witnessing an historic disgrace. I think they're witnessing incredible irresponsibility, incredibly damaging messages being sent to the rest of the world about how democracy functions. And I think it is... uh, um, Well... I don't know his motive, but I I just think it's totally irresponsible. From NPR and WBUR, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today on Point, President Trump remains president and commander-in-chief until January 20th. So we'll take a look at who he's fired this week, why, and what impact it's having on major federal agencies. And joining me today is On Point News analyst Jack Beatty. He's with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Meghna. And also with us today is Suzanne Spaulding. She's with us from McLean, Virginia. She's formerly head of the National Protection and Programs Directorate. Now it's called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. That is the same position that Christopher Krebs held until the president fired him this week. She's also served in Republican and Democratic administrations uh, in Congress and worked uh, in the general counsel's office at the CIA. She's currently senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome to On Point, Suzanne. Thank you, Magna. Great to be here. So first of all, let's just start uh, straight away with the president's firing of Christopher Christopher Krebs. I'm wondering, Suzanne, if you could actually just explain a little bit to us um, about the position that Krebs held until this week and its import. Sure, yes. So Chris was came in uh, as my successor at DHS, initially as the undersecretary for... Uh, the National Protection Programs Directorate. And and I have to say, one of the things that I most appreciated about Chris, who is somebody that I had worked with when I was at DHS and he was at Microsoft, is that he came in and didn't have that sort of, uh, that <clears throat> all that was the last administration, we're going to throw all that away and start over. He picked up where we were, particularly on building those relationships and institutions for election integrity, and he ran with it. Uh, and, and that's, and he took over that mission and, and helped the transformation continue to what is now CISA. And the role of, of that organization is to strengthen the security and the resilience of our nation's critical infrastructure. Those things that we depend upon a day in and day out, like electricity and water and transportation, and also like our election infrastructure. And so, uh, Krebs... Well, the other thing that distinguished him, let's just jump right to it, uh, is that he repeatedly defended the work uh, of of the agency. He defended the integrity of um, American elections, and and he would take to Twitter to uh, push back against the president's claims of uh, of voter fraud. Um, First of all, is is that – Suzanne, is that sort of an expected part of the job, or were you surprised by how forthright he was – publicly, if on social media, in pushing back against the president? I I wasn't surprised at all. Chris has always been a straight shooter. And we all understood that one of the most important aspects of securing our election was going to be sustaining public confidence in the legitimacy of that process. We understood that in 2016, and, and Chris and his team understood how incredibly important that was. So, so the, 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 straight talk to the American public, shooting down uh, misleading information, disinformation was an essential part of their mission. Chris knew it and he did it. So what then is the impact of the president 
firing him? Well, it's a loss. Uh, Chris was a was a great leader for that organization. But I have to say, I have the utmost confidence in the men and women uh, who continue to to uh, work at that agency. They will they have their heads down. They know how important their mission is and they are continuing uh, to do their jobs. And they are currently led uh, by Brandon Wales, who Chris you know, sort of put in place as executive director to be prepared to step into that position. And he's somebody that worked for me and he's very confident he will do a very good job as long as he's allowed to stay there. So Jack, I'm going to come to you here in a second. But first of all, let's listen to a little bit from uh, Chris Krabs speaking on Election Day, uh, talking to reporters about the integrity of the vote. My team here at the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency has worked tirelessly over the last three and a half years, uh, flown thousands of miles, spent countless nights away from home to ensure that this election is secure as possible. And I do have confidence uh, that the vote is secure, the count is secure, and the results will be secure. Jack, your thoughts on the firing of Krebs? Well, uh, a man of honor can't serve in that position under Mr. Trump. And uh, I'm, I'm struck with Chris Krebs's warning, uh, a tweet that he, he wrote yesterday after the uh, press conference given by Rudy Giuliani and some of his accomplices in this effort to sabotage the election. Uh, uh, Krebs wrote, that press conference was the most dangerous one hour and 45 minutes of television in American history and possibly the craziest. Uh, if anything, that's an understatement if you watched it. It was a bizarre um, uh, and, 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 and deeply, deeply embarrassing moment for all concerned. And it, of course, brings us uh, to, to the news today that uh, in, in, in pursuit of the president's fantasies of overturning the election, he's now uh, uh, trying to talk to Michigan legislators to essentially overturn the will of the American people, uh, of, the, of, the, of Michigan voters, and, and give the election to him. Mitt Romney, I think, eloquently has spoken to that. He says the president has now resorted to overt pressure on state and local officials to subvert the will of the people and overturn the election. It is difficult to imagine a worse, more undemocratic action by a sitting American president. That's Mitt Romney. Well, let's listen to a little bit from that press conference uh, with Rudy Giuliani yesterday. Again, the president's personal lawyer, um, Giuliani repeated the claim without evidence that Republican poll watchers in Philadelphia were kept far away from uh, uh, observing the vote counting. Um, and Giuliani gave this example. Did you all watch My Cousin Vinny? Did you know the movie? My, it's one of my favorite uh, law movies because he comes from Brooklyn. And uh, when the, the nice lady who said she saw and then he... Uh, he he says to her, how many f fingers do I, how many fingers do I got up? And she says, uh, three. Well, she was too far away to see it was only two. These people were further away than my cousin Vinny was from the witness. So Suzanne, um, as Jack pointed out, Chris Krebs himself saw that that's just a taste of the hour and 45 minutes from Giuliani yesterday, but he saw that as a dangerous moment for American democracy. Given the fact that you have served in the exact same position that Krebs did until this week, I mean, would you agree with him? And if so, why are, is what... I'd love to hear from you your take on why this continuous um, assertion of, of, uh, of unfounded claims is so dangerous if, as you say, you have confidence in how the, the, these institutions, the agencies are operating still under the, in the waning days of the Trump administration. Yeah, well, Chris is exactly right. It's this whole effort to undermine the public's confidence in the legitimacy of this election is very dangerous and extremely troubling. <clears throat> we need... Uh, to have a smooth transition uh, to the next administration. Yeah, the, the undermining of the legitimacy of Vice President-elect Biden's uh, or the attempts to undermine the legitimacy of his election 
will make it harder for him to do the important things he needs to do, starting with uh, uniting this country and reminding us of, of the things that we share, the values that we share, uh, and bringing us together to do the things that need to be done in this country. It also makes it, has, has made it impossible to start the transition. And that is extremely uh, troubling for the American public. Uh, because not only is the uh, president-elect not getting the national security briefings that he and his team need to be able to secure this country from, the, from day one, starting at noon on January 20th, when they take over the levers of government, but all across government, including at DHS, uh, those those folks who are going to be stepping into those positions uh, are not getting the briefings and the information that they need. And every day of delay has an impact. Think about the important work that needs to be done to make sure that we can uh, deal with COVID, that we can, can get the vaccines uh, manufactured and distributed. Every day of delay. Yesterday, we had 200,000 more cases of COVID and nearly 2,000 deaths. Every day of delay in that context costs lives. But the work that needs to be done uh, across the board at government uh, to get this transition going so that we can help the American people on day one is so important. Think about FEMA, which is part of DHS, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. In January of 2017, we had a massive ice storm leading to deaths all across the Midwest. We had tornadoes in Texas. In January of 2019, we had earthquakes in Puerto Rico. These folks need to be ready immediately to respond on behalf of the American public. And this, this charade of, of pretending that the election is not final and delaying the transition is very dangerous. We've got about 30 seconds before we have to take our first break, Suzanne. But, I mean, you've, you've worked under Republican and Democratic administrations. I'm, so I'm going to presume that you know and have worked with some of the current uh, Republican members of Congress who are saying nothing. I mean, who, who allow uh, you know, a small handful of people like Mitt Romney to continue to be the exception uh, in terms of G members of the GOP who are willing to speak out in defense of the United States democracy. Why is that happening, Suzanne? I don't know. Let me just read a quick quote from Senator Johnson, Ron Johnson of uh, Wisconsin. Any disruption occasioned by the transfer of the executive power could produce results detrimental to the safety and well-being of the United States and its people. That's what he said last year. I don't know why they're being silent now. Well, Suzanne Spaulding and Jack Beatty stand by. We'll have a lot more to cover when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire... You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. 
At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It's Friday. So yet again, we're trying to understand the big themes in the week's news. And I'm joined today by Jack Beattie. He's On Point news analyst with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. And Suzanne Spaulding also joins us. She, uh, in the Obama administration, served as undersecretary for the Department of Homeland Security, where she led what was then known as the National Protection and Programs uh, Directorate, now called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And uh, we are particularly leaning on her experience and expertise in that area because this week the president fired Christopher Krebs, the man who held that position after Suzanne uh, did at DHS. And and Suzanne, let me ask you this. Um, I heard you loud and clear earlier when you said you have faith in the men and women who are working in the department right now, right? They are they are doing the work of the federal government. Um, regarding cybersecurity and homeland security. In other words, the American people should have faith in their institutions. Um, but so one thing that we've been trying to do over the past many months here on this show is help prepare listeners for um, you know what might come or where should we be looking to understand uh, when 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 things might might get shaky. So let me just ask you this: How many more people or, or what positions? Would, could the president, um, you know, fire folks from after which you'd start getting worried about how the agency is is able to operate in the best interest of the American people? Well, certainly at DHS, there's hardly anybody left to be fired. Uh, there are so many senior leadership positions in the department that are vacant, that are filled with acting people who are in acting roles or uh, even weaker than an acting role, performing the duties of. And these people do not have the full range of authorities that a confirmed, uh, formally appointed official would have. And I'm, I'm talking about the, the top six positions, leadership positions within DHS are all uh, with acting or performing the duties of, and 12 senior positions, including the head of, uh, of the uh, CBP, ICE, uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, and now CISA. So, so it's been, the leadership ranks have been pretty decimated. What I'm looking for at CISA to see, uh, you know, whether the folks there are able to continue to do the important job they do for the American public are things like the, the, the website page that Chris Krebs and his team established called Rumor Control, which was where they knocked down disinformation and misleading information, undermining the public's confidence in the election. That's still up. If that comes down, that's obviously a sign that we need to, you know, step up our vigilance. Congress needs to step in, uh, that we need to be very worried. Um, uh, you know, I, again, I, I have confidence in the acting official, Brandon Wales, who's there now. Um, if someone new comes in, again, we need to we need to look to see whether that uh, individual continues to uh, be a straight shooter with the American public. Um, uh, you know, I do think that we this requires vigilance and and we have agency here. And I am reminded of what happened in in Wayne County. Uh, just a couple days ago, uh, when when uh, officials there voted against certifying the election results, the public was watching. People were watching, and they stood up with one voice and very firmly objected to that. And the vo- and the votes were turned around. Um, uh, the, the that decision was turned around. So we need to be vigilant. You're, you're, the Wayne County example is is a is a good one. However, perhaps it, it, it's good for a darker reason too, because now those same officials say they want to undo their vote to to certify. So things keep. I mean, they can't now. They can't actually undo that. But but uh, you know, they're they're still they're still uh, you know the president bringing uh, f- uh, lawmakers from Michigan to the White House. It's just the the chaos 
continues and it t- continues to undermine, I think, um, the, the bedrock of trust that the, the, the American people need to have or that form, that form the foundation of our, of our democracy. So one last question for you, Suzanne, because you have served in these very positions. I just wonder, are you dismayed? Are, are you dismayed at what is happening to our democracy, to the functioning of our government, to the concept that um, there must be service for to for all the American people, for those who 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 are working in Washington. I just want to know from someone who has been in these positions, what has this been like for you watching all of this unfold? Ah, uh, Magna dismayed is putting it way too mildly. Uh, it it has been extremely difficult. Uh, to watch all of the ways in which the public's trust in fundamental institutions of our democracy has been daily undermined. And the rebuilding uh, that the Biden administration is going to have to undertake is going to be massive, not just rebuilding trust in that Department of Homeland Security uh, where I worked, but rebuilding trust in across the board in our democracy, and in our institutions. I really think we need a massive effort at civic renewal. I think we need to to restore civics education so that Americans understand what democracy is about and their role in holding it accountable and their ability to bring about change to rebuild trust. Well, Suzanne Spaulding, Currently, she's senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Magna. Great to talk with you. Jack, we're going to talk about the Pentagon here uh, uh, in depth in just a second. But but your thoughts on what Suzanne said about this massive, re- like small-D Democratic rebuilding project that she thinks the entire nation needs to undergo? Yes, uh, and unfortunately, they're going to have to undergo it in the wake of Trump. This week, a metaphor has taken hold from Roman times, salting the earth. That's what uh, the Romans did when they would conquer a, a city. They would not just conquer it, but salt the earth so that nothing could grow there again. The president is salting the earth uh, in the Defense Department and in other ways, and above all, in uh, convincing, at least for now, a, a, a you know a supermajority of Republicans, according to polls, that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. The danger that does to our whole uh, exp- <laughs> to ending even possibly ending the American experiment, it just can't be over overstated. That's the earth that he is salting. It's the American earth he's salting. Hmm. Well, let us now uh, focus a little bit on the Pentagon. Because this week, uh, Acting Defense Secretary uh, Chris Miller announced uh, that uh, – excuse me. I'm going to get this right. I've got to get the facts right. He On Tuesday, he announced that the United States is going to reduce its military presence in Afghanistan. Now, interestingly, that actually brought some pushback from the Senate Majority Leader, from Mitch McConnell. And this is what he said this week. I think it's extremely important here in the next couple of – months, not to have any earth-shaking changes with regard to defense and foreign policy. Uh, I think a precipitous drawdown in either Afghanistan or Iraq would be a mistake. Well, joining us now is Corey Shackey. She's director of foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, has worked at the State Department, the DOD, and the National Security Council at the White House. Her most recent book is America versus the West, Can the Liberal Order Be Preserved? And she's also written extensively in The Atlantic about the Trump administration's policy moves in the final weeks of the Trump administration. We have links to that at onpointradio.org. Corey, welcome to the program. Thank you. So first of all, let's talk about this announcement of um, a a troop drawdown or troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. Your thoughts about it? I think it's a bad idea as a a policy decision because our objectives in Afghanistan are twofold. First, a counterterrorism mission. And second, building the government of Afghanistan into having the ability to fight the counterterrorism mission 
without us having to do it. So it's an investment in the present for better capability in the future. And the drawdowns that the president just decided and the Pentagon is uh, getting started on carrying out will probably make doing those two things impossible. You will still be able to do the counterterrorism mission, but you won't be building in the government of Afghanistan the capacity to do this work, which means we're still going to have to do this work going forward. Uh, so I think it's a bad policy decision, but I want to emphasize that the system's working just fine. The president actually has the right mm -hmm. to make bad policy decisions, and he actually has a right to cabinet ministers who work assiduously to carry them out. And he has a right to private military advice that he ignores. All true. And exactly true. He is the commander in chief until January 20th. So so tell me then, um, what do you do you wonder about the timing, though, of this now? Because uh, for an, an orderly drawdown for the sort of um, advantageous uh, uh, execution of policy, is this the right time to do something like this? Uh, no, of course not. But both President Trump and President-elect Biden have bought into this idea that we have to end the forever wars. Um, and it's a popular notion, and it's wrong that what we are doing is supporting governments so they get the ability to solve these problems without us having to do that work. Uh, and so I think President Trump's desire to run for the exits in Afghanistan, Iraq, and also in East Africa, are it's creating problems for the future. Mm. Jack, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's uh, that's the view of Mark Esper, the who was fired last week as defense secretary. He wrote a memo to the White House basically saying, don't do this. He, he pointed out there was ongoing violence, possible danger to the remaining 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, potential danger to the damage to the alliances and fear of undercutting peace negotiations with the Taliban, that all of this could be a consequence of this uh, of this decision. That was seconded by General Miley and also by Zalmay Kalazar, the head of the NATO mission in Afghanistan uh, and the and the chief peace negotiator. So it, it, it's clearly a reckless and ill-considered decision. Uh, the president seeming some people think uh, to, you know, to, to create problems for Joe Biden, that if something goes wrong there, Biden will have to rush troops back in and will be stuck with perpetuating these, quote unquote, forever wars. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Corey, did you want to r respond to what Jack said? No, I think he's right that it's an ill-considered decision. I'm skeptical, though, that President Trump is purposely making things worse for Joe Biden, I don't think. I think the clearest guide to President Trump's foreign and defense policy action has been what he campaigned on in 2016. And as he, as his time as president is coming to a close, I think he's trying to carry out. He he wanted to completely withdraw troops from both Afghanistan and Iraq, and I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to push that ball as far as he can. And I agree it's a bad decision. Mm. Well, one of your uh, recent articles in The Atlantic, now I know that uh, r the writers don't get to pick the headlines in in their <laughs> articles, uh, but the headline is Trump's pettiness uh, This is the simplest explanation. Um, and uh, basically talking about plain old spite might be uh, one way to look at the president's decisions um, regarding national security and the Pentagon. So, just just tell, take me a little bit more into how you're how you're seeing more broadly the changes um, that the president uh, has wrought, especially in the DOD in recent weeks. Yeah. So the president fired the secretary, the undersecretary for intelligence, the undersecretary for policy, the secretary's chief of staff, uh, and it's tempting to look at this as strategic and to believe that the president's trying to remove uh, objections 
to forcing the military into supporting the keeping him in office or to get out of the way uh, civilian leaders who would object to an attack on Iran or other foreign policy moves. But I think the simpler explanation is that, first of all, the civilian control of the military isn't the reason that the American military wouldn't support keeping President Trump in office when his term expires. The professionalism and commitment to the American people and to the Constitution is the reason that the military doesn't do that. Secretary Esper wasn't standing athwart the the transom and preventing the military from stampeding into support of President Trump. Mm. Um, They're a professional force and they understand the obligations of commitment to the Constitution. And on policies like uh, an unprovoked attack on Iran's nuclear infrastructure, which President Trump convened his leadership is last week to consider, um, I don't think this that you needed to fire the civilian leadership of the department in order to get their support for that, because the Pentagon uh, has has supported President Trump in, for example, moving money that Congress had authorized for other purposes into support for building the wall along the Mexican border, which shouldn't be possible, which the Congress on a bipartisan basis objected to. So I don't think the civilian leadership, the previous civilian leadership of the department was all that strong a bulwark against those kinds of policies or would be willing to refuse to carry out the president's policies. There seems to me the most likely explanation is that the president just wants himself surrounded by people who will do what Vice President Pence and Secretary Pompeo have done, which is be little sunflowers supporting the president's every conception of himself. Um, Jack, I'm going to. Yeah, go ahead, Jack, please. Well, I, I was just going to say I'm a little more alarmed. I don't I'm not as informed as Corey, but I'm a little more alarmed when when Mark Esper uh, resigned or was fired. He and of course, he was mocked by President uh, Trump as Esper, Mark Yesper. Well, he told the Military Times that when I'm fired, you'll get the real yes men, then, quote, God help us. And these yes men, the people that are uh, been appointed, are can be classified basically as palookas. They're bigots, cranks, conspiracy mongers, according to Max Boot. And they, according to uh, Ron Wyden, the president, the people he fired, why did he fire them in the Pentagon? Because they would not obey an illegal order. That's from Senator Ron Wyden. I think it's a dangerous situation. Jack, uh, stand by. And Corey, I'll let you respond when we come back uh, from the other side of this break. So hang there with us. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. It's Friday, so I want you to be able to enjoy your weekend as much as possible. But we're also thinking about Monday's show where we're going to be talking to a former conservative blogger who's now saying that he believes right-wing media is undermining American democracy. So we want to hear from you about the kinds of media that you watch, that you listen to, of course, and that you read. Does it come from a variety of perspectives? And how does the media that you're consuming influence your outlook about 
this country? And have you had conversations with friends, families, uh, members or neighbors and realized that uh, you've got vastly different views on what's happening in this world and that those views are largely driven or informed by the media you consume? So call us at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. We want to get your take on how the infosphere is changing or distorting American democracy. That's for Monday's show. Today, we are taking a look at the events that have happened in the Trump administration this week. We talked about the firing of Christopher Krebs at the Department of Homeland Security. We're now focusing on um, what's been going on at the Pentagon. And I'm joined today by Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, and Corey Shackey, Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And Corey, before the break, Jack uh, had expressed more alarm, as he said, uh, about who actually is uh, in these very powerful positions in the in the DOD now. And I just wanted to give you a chance to respond. So I agree with his judgment that they're unqualified. I think I don't think any of the people the president has appointed uh, in an acting basis in the Defense Department would survive a Senate confirmation process which is precisely why he put them in in an acting in an acting role but i also think you shouldn't overestimate the importance of high level resignations in the trump administration uh, or that those would change policy especially in the last 60 days of an administration you know jim mattis resigned over the president's decisions on syria policy and the consultation with the lack of consultation with America's allies about it. It didn't change the policy and it didn't uh, cause better consultation with allies. And the Secretary Esper and others had nowhere near the stature Jim Mattis did. So I don't think it's as strong a bulwark as he does. Okay. So, you know, if, if, if you don't mind, I just, there's a really interesting paragraph in um, one of your recent articles for, for oh, The Atlantic. Because, I mean, no, because I think people, you know, m- most folks don't have the time to dig deep into in understanding who these f- folks that uh, the president has appointed are, right? So you say, you said sure. that um, the replacements for the defenestrated national security leaders are not cause for consolation either. Christopher Miller, now acting Secretary of Defense, was just 10 months ago appointed to a job four echelons lower in the hierarchy. And then you point out that his new chief of staff, Kash Patel, was involved with Representative Devin Nunes's scurrilous release of arguably classified information. You talk about the new NSA general counsel. Uh, and then you say, in fact, the new acting undersecretary of, uh, of defense for policy, Anthony Tata, was supposed to come before the Senate, but saw his nomination pulled because he had shown bigotry and unsound judgment. So maybe I'm just taking your point and driving it even further, Corey. Totally point taken, as you said. Most of these people would not survive a formal confirmation process in the Senate. And yet, in their acting capacities, they are still imbued with a tremendous amount of power. They're sitting at the top of the Pentagon. So, I mean, is that not, that simple fact alone, not a not sufficient cause for concern? Oh, it's definitely cause for concern. Um, But remember also that the Pentagon is an enormous bureaucracy that not only has a professional military staffing it, it has a a professional civil service staffing it. And they are well-informed, good at their jobs, understand their responsibilities to the American people. And I think the amount of damage that uh, a group of ill-qualified appointees can do in 60 days uh, is limited. The bureaucracy has a great ability to slow things down, to cause consideration. And I would also point out that the president and his executive branch appointees are not the entirety of civilian control of the military, Mm. that the Congress is actually an equally and in many cases more important source of civilian control of the military and of shaping defense policy. As the example you used at the start of the hour, Mitch McConnell's objection to the drawdown, Um, that I think one of the things that uh, was terrible at the moment but may turn out to actually be really good for the country was the experience of the Lafayette Square 
incident last summer where General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, marched through a a square adjacent to the White House that had been forcibly cleared of peaceful protesters. And General Milley was in combat fatigues Mm -hmm. when he was beside the president. That kind of politicization of suggesting that the military supports the policy preferences of the president yeah. And the behavior of the president is a terrible thing. But General Milley filmed an abject apology that ended up brightening the line of appropriate behavior and not to cross it. And I think that's actually been very helpful now because the Congress and the civilians, uh, the bureaucracy in the Pentagon and the military are all very much staying out of this as well they should. Yeah, I I, I agree. But at the, at the Millie's apology was it was critically important to your point about that br- that bright line. And at the same time, I mean, the fact that these qualified, um, uh, highly qualified Americans who have you know dedicated their careers to to service having to basically push back against the debasement that's heaped upon them by this administration. It's got to take a toll. I mean, Jack, Jack, your thoughts on what Corey is saying? Well, again, uh, other people take other views. Uh, In the Financial Times this morning, a former senior Pentagon official says it's pretty clear that Miller, the new Secretary of Defense, will do Trump's bidding And he has got a Praetorian guard of Trumpists all around him. There are many more shoes to drop, this man uh, warns. And earlier this week, Miller, the Secretary of Defense, issued a a warning to his Pentagon staff not to resist orders from the top. Well, why was Mark Esper in uh, Trump's bad book, bad books to begin with? Uh, Well, one big reason was in the summer— he came out and resisted publicly the president's call to deploy U.S. troops in American cities. He said, no, I'm not going to obey such an order. Well, one big danger, of course, right now is will these hacks and time servers and Trumpists who owe everything to him, to Trump, would, would they obey such an order? Now, as I say, uh, we, we, have, we have Ron Wyden saying that the people who were fired were fired because they wouldn't obey illegal orders. So I just think we Secretary have to be uh, – Esper- Secretary Esper did not say he wouldn't obey an order from the president if the president invoked the Insurrection Act. He said it would be a bad idea to invoke the Insurrection Act. And the acting secretary of defense is actually quite right to remind people in a fevered political moment that it is the responsibility of the military and the civilians in the Pentagon to obey legal orders, provided that they are also moral. That's a really important distinction not to gloss over. Well, I'm afraid we have to wrap up this conversation today. And of course, there are heavy implications in the words legal and moral right now when it comes to orders issued by the President of the United States. But Corey Shackey, Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. We've got links to her articles in The Atlantic at onpointradio.org. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, my deep gratitude to you as always. Jack, thank you. Thank you, Magna. All right. Well, let's take a deep breath together and go back to one moment from earlier this month when Joe Biden addressed the nation for the first time as the president-elect. Now, he will be only the second Catholic president in the nation's history. And Biden referenced his Catholic faith by invoking a particular hymn. It captures the faith that sustains me, and which I believe sustains America. And I hope, and I hope it can provide some comfort and solace to the 230 million thousand Americans who've lost a loved one to this terrible virus this year. My heart goes out to each and every one of you. Hopefully this hymn gives you solace as well. It goes like this. And he will raise you up on eagle's wings, bear you on the breath of dawn, 
and make you to shine like the sun and hold you in the palm of his hand. Biden said the hymn was particularly meaningful to his late son, Beau Biden, and now he saw it in the broader context to the rest of the country. And now together, on Eagle's Wings, we embark on the work that God and history have called upon us to do with full hearts and steady hands, with faith in America and in each other, with love of country, a thirst for justice. Let us be the nation that we know we can be, a nation united, a nation strengthened, a nation healed. The United States of America, ladies and gentlemen, there's never, never been anything we've tried we've not been able to do. Now, Biden's mentioning of this hymn really stood out to a lot of folks watching the address. Singer Lana Del Rey covered it on her Instagram. Now, the text of the hymn draws from Psalm 91 in the Bible, but it was composed by Father Jan Michael Jonkas, a priest and artist-in-residence and research fellow in Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. In 1976, I had dropped out of the seminary system for a while and was working, but wanted to keep friendships up with people that I had studied with. And one of them was a man named Doug Hall from Omaha, who had continued in the seminary system and was studying at Theological College in Washington, D.C. Well, when we came home to Theological College after a a wonderful dinner, there was a message waiting for Doug saying that his dad had just had a heart attack. And the song was actually generated between that night and the wake service for his dad. I would say that the most common experience for me when people contact me about having used the song is in the context of funerals. So their experience of comfort and encouragement at the loss of a loved one is usually why they would write to me. Psalm 91 is part of the formal night prayer for Roman Catholics in a thing called the Liturgy of the Hours. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And Psalm 91 is one of the psalms that's prescribed for one of the day's night prayer. So I'd been praying it for years. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. And it came to mind when thinking about trying to create a song that would be of comfort and encouragement. One of the great blessings of living long enough to hear the song done in many different contexts is now to look back and realize that although it started in a Catholic ambit, it soon moved beyond Catholicism to other Christian denominations. So it was no longer confined just to Catholicism. A massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, shattering that building, killing children. When the Oklahoma bombings took place some years ago, I believe the wife of the governor of Oklahoma at that time asked that On Eagle's Wings be sung for the memorial service. And that was the first time that I recognized the song had gone beyond any even religious direct religious context to now be kind of a civic hymn. And I was absolutely delighted uh, to see that it could move beyond certain frameworks and make comfort and encouragement available to people in other contexts. When President-elect Biden used it in a new context, it, it awakened an entirely new way of interpreting the song for me. And I thought, perhaps he's thinking we are, as as American citizens, divided about 50% against 50%. And here's the image of an eagle flying 
It's impossible for an eagle to fly with only one wing. It needs both of the wings to be able to soar. And perhaps he's thinking uh, we need both sides, the 50% and the 50%, to soar ahead into the future as, as a good, good country. He will raise you up on eagle's wing. Susan Powell and the Oklahoma City Philharmonic performing on Eagle's Wings at the memorial service for the victims of Oklahoma of the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Father Jan Michael Jonkus is a priest and artist in residence at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's the man who wrote the music for On Eagle's Wings. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is on point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.